1: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready.
0: Are you? Hey there, Tech Stuff listeners. This is Jonathan Strickland, and I've got a request for all of you. Now, Chris and I have decided that we're going to try an experiment. We're doing our first crowdsourced episode of Tech Stuff, and we want to know what your pick is for the worst video game of all time. Now, Nominations you can you can make one nomination you nominate one game and you need to tell us the name of the game and the platform it was on and it can be any platform it can be an arcade game it can be a PC Mac uh, Xbox PS3 Nintendo handheld console it can be web based if you like but just you let us know what the platform is so we can make sure we count that as the votes so you can nominate your game either through email which is text stuff At howstuffworks.com or you can nominate through twitter or facebook and we're going to put a a cutoff date on this i I want to have the episode go up by the end of september of 2011 so let's say you need to get your nominations in by september 8th 2011 so if you get those nominations into us we will make sure we include those in the process, and we will have an episode where we give you the worst video games of all time based upon the votes of our listeners. Thanks a lot. Can't wait to hear from you. Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff
1: from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as he frequently does,
0: is Senior Writer Jonathan Strickland. I'm the dandy highwayman who you're too scared to mention. I spend my cash on looking flash and grabbing your attention. <laughs> okay. I told you. I giggled when I when I thought of that too. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes when I come up with the quotes uh, that I use at the beginning of podcasts, it's immediately before we start recording, like today. And uh, I started cackling as soon as I thought of which one I wanted to do. Anyway, today we're going to talk about digital theft. Uh, but we're, we're really going to focus on a specific case here. And it's an interesting one. Chris, you want to set this up?
1: Yeah. Um, well, where, where to start? I guess we should just start specifically with the details. Yeah, yeah. Um, there is a, uh, I guess it's probably best to call him an activist. Yes. Named Aaron Swartz. Um, who was arrested in Boston a few days before we were recording this um, in uh, early August of 2011. And he's been accused of uh, taking four million uh, digital documents, essentially, from uh, from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, and JSTOR, which is an online digital repository of uh, scholarly journal articles.
0: Yes, journal storage is essentially what JSTOR stands for.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm, hmm um yeah anybody who's listening who is uh who is either in college now or you know recently probably in the last 10 or so years probably is familiar with Jstor uh, especially in the humanities and um related related things but um yeah so he's been basically charged with uh essentially sneaking into a closet on the MIT campus hooking up a computer with a removable drive uh to the network equipment and downloading millions of documents. Yeah, and the uh, the federal government has charges out against him.
0: Yeah, the federal government, the United States federal government, alleges that uh, Swartz's intent was to distribute these uh, files in uh, a manner, a file distribute distribution manner, usually peer to peer network, like a like the Pirate Bay, something like that, right? Right. That that's the allegation. Although. Um, everything I read up till the recording of this podcast suggests that there's not really any actual uh, publicly known evidence to support this, that it's really just an allegation that's based upon Swartz's history and the fact that he actually got the, these four million documents. Here, here's some interesting things about this case that are a little uh, odd to me just on the surface level. So you've got um, Swartz who has uh, – uh, apparently broken into MIT in order to download these documents leaving the computer there because of course we're talking about millions of, of files so this is taking a while to to happen uh he was working over at Harvard Harvard also has access to JSTOR documents JSTOR documents if you don't know uh, you know colleges will pay some sort of uh, subscription fee in order to access different parts of JSTOR's database
1: yeah, I can, I can get into that in lots more detail if you want to.
0: Sure, because that's an important part of this discussion, actually. I mean, to, to really understand this case, and I, I don't even say that I fully understand it, but you need to get all the details to, to really kind of get a grip on on what this means.
1: Yeah, that, that's the funny thing to me about this particular case, because a lot of times people who are, are breaking into and stealing electronic files from people I think of them as going after the big targets, people who basically are um, specifically involved in copyright fights. People like the movie industry or the recording industry where they're saying, I'm doing this because the industry is uh, repressing, you know, as as making this this information unavailable to the public. Mm-hmm. JSTOR, on the other hand, is a nonprofit. Yes. JSTOR, as you mentioned, is is short for journal storage and it's um it, it was actually founded as a, a way to uh to make journal articles available online digitized and then uh and then made available to institutions at one point there were only uh, a handful of journals uh available and a handful of colleges and universities that subscribed to them but over time it's it's grown uh, uh amazingly to be honest um the thing is with JSTOR uh they they do collect fees from all these institutions uh, partially for equipment partially to help fund institutions that have a, a tougher time with the fees um, and they have to negotiate uh, a big part of that too is the the licenses uh, that they have to negotiate with publishers because um, you know these uh, jSTOR is not um, you know the publisher of a lot of these documents um, and not everything of course is is uh, is owned by someone the copyright is is uh, only valid for some of the stuff. Some of the other stuff is older and, pu- and not in the, uh, not under copyright anymore. So um, the thing is, though, that the publishers may have different uh, requirements for for being published in JSTOR. Like some some publishers have absolutely no qualms about making a journal article uh, or, or an issue of a journal available on JSTOR immediately after it's been published. So it goes to press and then it, it ends up on the shelf at the library. And at the same time, you can access it digitally. But others might require an embargo of six months to a year. Uh, so you may, you know, they may expect you to go to the uh, the library and actually pick it up. Now, um, part of the benefit to uh, these databases is that uh, it makes it available more widely, especially for distance learning students. Um, but it also uh, helps... Mitigate the cost somewhat of subscribing to some of these journals, which can be very, very expensive, and sometimes in the case uh, of thousands of dollars, uh, because you know these magazines are uh, are not like you know Time or um, you know Rolling Stone or something like that, where they're subsidized by advertising. It's that uh, you know the, these these are scholarly uh, journals, and they have a much smaller um, readership, so they have to charge a lot more to keep them in print. Um, and this, th- using these databases can make it a little easier. It also frees up space on the library shelves. So that's, um, you know, another benefit to doing that. But, um, but yeah, JSTOR is, is essentially though a non by, and makes it available through, uh, grant funding from the Mellon Foundation and, uh, and other sources. So I, I still find it odd that, that he would target a, um, that he would target a non organization that's, that's dedicated to this specific purpose rather than somebody else that seems like it would be more a more obvious target if you were going after people who were uh, enforcing copyright.
0: Right. And to, to make this even more complicated, uh, JSTOR, you know, when we're talking about these these fees that that mostly libraries and uh, and, and universities pay in order to get access to some of these um, libraries that JSTOR has available, uh, that money is not. Really going toward JSTOR, that money is going to pay off the uh, the licensing fees JSTOR has to pay to these publishers mm-hmm. in order to get access to these documents in the first place. Uh, so you know you can't really vilify JSTOR too much. They're not. It's not like it's a, a for-profit uh, corporation. It's it's a non-for-profit. So it's not you know they're they're trying to provide a service. So in a way they're caught in the middle in this. Uh, but another complicated issue is that. More than half of the documents that, that Swartz was grabbing were in the public domain in the sense that copyright had expired on these. These are, they were either old enough so that they were no longer under copyright or otherwise they were no longer, they were not protected by copyright. They were public domain articles. So you've got the argument from some people who say if it's in the public domain, it should be publicly accessible. Right. There should not be a wall between Uh, the consumer and the content. Yeah. Because it's, it's public domain. It's, no one owns the copyright to that anymore.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, that, that too makes sense that he would use that as a target. Um, the flip, my, my counter argument would be, uh, that JSTOR probably keeps that behind the wall because, uh, they need people to, Provide funding for hardware and for salaries, the people who work with the the product. And, and broad, yes, I do. Broad as and well.
0: broadband costs. And broadband costs too. There's, so. there's operation, there are real operational costs to operating JSTOR. It's not like, you know, we can easily forget that there are real costs associated with anything digital, right? I mean, yeah. it's easy for us to forget. I mean, you sit there and say, all right, sure, yeah, there's electricity costs because you got to pay to power the servers. But then you think, well, then you got to actually buy the servers, and you don't just buy the servers. You have to maintain the servers and buy backups so that if a server fails, another one immediately goes online. And these these needs keep on going, and right. the money there is real money that you have to spend to do that. So, but th- there also may be some agreements with the publishers that they're licensing things with. Why that that might be a reason why things are behind a paywall too is not sure. because. Not because the content itself is under copyright, but because it's part of an overall agreement with an actual publisher saying, oh, well, sure, we will license this stuff to you. But part of that agreement is that you have to keep all this stuff behind uh, a walled garden as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, um, when it comes to stuff in the public domain, we can also make the argument of just because it's in the public domain doesn't mean that you can just waltz up and grab a copy with no consequences. For example, mm-hmm. a, an example I saw quoted in a great article was about um, let's say uh, Shakespeare's works. Mm-hmm. All right, well, Shakespeare's works are in the public domain. Yes, you know he he did not renew that copyright. It was very short sighted of him. <laughs> and so, um, but that doesn't mean that you could walk into a, uh, a bookstore. I was going to say Borders, but <laughs> not anymore. So long. Uh, Parting is such sweet sorrow. But you could walk into a a bookstore. You can't walk into a bookstore, lift up a copy of Shakespeare's (laughs) works and say, this is in public domain, and then run out of the store with no fear of being brought up on on shoplifting charges. That's not the way it works.
1: Right. And likewise, you might say, well, there's a copy available at my local public library, and I can go read it for free. And that's true. Yep. Uh, Well, that may be. The, The copy at your public library may have been lost. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, but the thing is, though, that's not free either because taxpayers are footing the bill for keeping the library open, for building the collection, um, for paying the librarians and the other, uh, people who work in the library to be there and make that, that available. Um, and, and for buying a new copy when somebody wears it out or spills grape juice all over it. Right. So, I mean, there, you know, I'm not saying that, that, uh, you know, it's necessarily right to keep an item. That is in the public domain behind a paywall, but there are reasons why you might charge to make it available because there are, are costs associated with it. So I see I see an argument for either side because I think public domain uh, information should be, you know, free and available, but you now, know there are there are logistical things too, you know.
0: But now you could also make the argument that let's say that you've got a bunch of material that is no longer protected under copyright. Mm-hmm and it, and you go ahead and you get hold of that, there's nothing that stops you from distributing that content. That's right. You can distribute it as much as you want once you have it. Like, Mm -hmm. you may – it might get a little tricky. You might have to make a copy of it in such a way that if someone else has added something to that, like let's say, again, you take a copy of the complete works of Shakespeare and there are uh, uh, annotations and notes in there, that makes it more complicated. But let's say that you were to, by hand Mm – copy every single one of Shakespeare's plays and then you decide to make as many copies of that and distribute it to as many people as you want that's perfectly fine yeah so there's some people who are asking well was swartz trying to do the equivalent of that was he trying to get hold of material that is in the public domain and thus put it up for uh, people to share as widely as they want um because it's in public domain so therefore there's no there he, where's the law being broken mm-hmm. like you can't if there's no copyright there <laughs> see this is where it's getting complicated right and and to be honest not all these questions are are even we're not we're not capable of answering them because we're not lawyers but more importantly there's not a lot of law around this kind of issue you know, a lot of the a lot of the laws that Swartz has been brought up on uh, are charges that have been brought against him have to do with wiretapping and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. Actually, I was I was going to uh to go through those really quickly here. Sure. Um, the the charges uh, right now uh, that I've read about um from the U.S. attorneys include um uh, computer fraud, wire fraud, uh, obtaining information from a protected computer, and criminal forfeiture. And he does face up to 35 years in prison and three years of supervised release uh, if he is convicted. Um, So, yeah, I mean, this is this is no laughing matter. But but these issues are why it's I, I think it's why the the copyright holders, the people like the RIAA and the MPAA are so afraid because it's not clear. I think. You know, honestly, I think they probably would enjoy being able to make their stuff available to people in different formats, but they're scared that people can just make one copy and run off with it and nobody gets paid. Uh, and that, you know, it's a somewhat legitimate concern, but, but in this case, you know, it's different. But I, I do think that's a lot of why, I mean, the laws are vague. They, you know, these technologies haven't been around for a long time and, you know, governments are, are not exactly known for their speedy, uh, reaction response, yeah. time on trying to resolve these issues and uh especially now that new technologies are available uh and are changing the way we do business um you know it's it's just muddying the water that that much further and so this it's going to be interesting to see how this case comes out because you know it, it may set precedence for how we handle a lot of these copyright issues online
0: sure and really a lot of the problems that come up around this Center around the fact that we're talking about digital products, which aren't are they lack something that real products, quote unquote, real or analog products have. Yeah, scarcity.
1: Uh, yeah, that's true.
0: There's no there's no such thing as scarcity in a digital world.
1: That's true, and there there is a uh, there's also a lack of of substance to them as well. Well, so there's they a are... lack of
0: substance in most of the things I buy.
1: <laughs> no, um, there no, there is no there's no physical. Manifestation. Yeah, there's of
0: no form factor there. The
1: document, which adds to, of course, adds to the fact, the fact that you can make as many copies of this as you want to and distribute it as in the matter of seconds around the world. Yeah. Um, so it it just it makes it very difficult to create laws that that both protect the the uh, person who created it and the consumer and and the consumer both and give yeah. them both rights, you know, the, the producer to get paid and the, the uh, other person to access that content on a fair basis.
0: So for those of you listening who who don't have a grip on the, the scarcity issue, I, I'm sure most of you do. But just in case, uh, if we're talking about physical products, let's say that uh, that Chris is what do you want to have? let just pick a physical thing that you want to to have as a product that you are offering. I was going to assign one to you, but I'm going to give you the option of choosing one.
1: Well, are, are we talking about something that I would do now?
0: No, no, anything, like anything, pie in the sky. If you want to say unicorns, you can say unicorns.
1: No, I want to say unicorns. Okay,
0: so Chris is offering, he's got 10 unicorns for sale. Okay. And I really want one of those unicorns, but I don't want to, you know, pay for one because I'm a nefarious ne'er-do-well, as quoted at the beginning of the show. And it's so- pretty I, accurate. I've decided that I am going to take one of those unicorns, and I take one of the unicorns, and now Chris has nine unicorns.
1: No, you cannot has. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So Chris has 9 unicorns and he's out one unicorn with no no uh, amount of money that he was going to ask for said unicorn. So he, I have stolen it. Do you know
1: how hard it is to breed unicorns these days?
0: I imagine it's going to be very difficult because I hardly see them anywhere. Uh but I see the meat on over at Think Geek. <laughs> they they sell the canned unicorn meat there, so um, anyway, so I've, I've decided to take a tasty unicorn and, mm. uh, I did not pay for it. So I have stolen it. And that, it's, it's easy to see that, right? Because there's evidence there. Chris had ten unicorns. Now he has nine unicorns. He has no extra money. This is, this is something that is easy for us to make laws about. I mean, granted, not about unicorns, but, you know, stealing in general. It's easy to make laws that cover this sort of thing because it's, it's a concrete example that mm-hmm. I have taken something from someone else without giving them what they were asking. And so and, easy to see.
1: Yeah. Because you can actually see it. It's in his backyard.
0: Yeah. And and, and we're talking like th- these are, this is an ancient concept. I mean, we have every single major civilization that ever existed, had some sort of law protecting people against theft. And then that goes back to the very
1: founding of the United States, of course, uh, You know, we're not the only people in the world to have copyright. Copyright actually predated, uh, the formation of the United States by, I would guess, I I can't remember the last time I read this, but I think about two or three centuries, maybe somewhere in there. I mean, Mm -hmm. not, not a long, not thousands of years. Right. Um, but, uh, in, in the Constitution, uh, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8. Um, The Congress shall have power, and it goes into all these different powers, to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. That's really vague, but it assigned a basic copyright. Yeah. It gave you the opportunity to make something and get something for it.
0: And this is where it gets a little more complicated because now we're talking about ideas. And ideas are not like unicorns. No, they're not. I wish I had picked something different now. Ideas are not like physical uh, products that actually have a true – like there's a physical representation of them and they are not – You know, you can't just clone – a physical product over and over and over again at no cost.
1: Well, actually, you know what? My original choice until you said unicorns was a Gutenberg Bible. So Guten- there are very, very few. Well, no, there are very, very few of them. Right. And, and we can't also reproduce it.
0: Yeah. There you go. Okay. So, so you would not be able to produce a new Gutenberg Bible. Which no. Not not an, a new an actual. A Gutenberg Bible would really freak me out. <laughs>
1: Man, I'm not doing well with this. No, no, today. no, it's okay. It's okay. But I mean, yeah, something. Well, a Bible in this case is is older than that. But yeah, say you had a, a rare, a rare book that was published, and there are maybe 20 of them left in the world, right? And it's the the first edition of this book that was printed 150, 200 years ago, or something
0: like yeah. that. Yeah. So at any rate, the theft of that is obvious. Now let's talk about a di- digital version of that. Now a digital version of that same book, uh, you don't steal the original; you make a copy. Right. So the original is still exactly where it was. So Chris still has, if he had the 20 unicorn, 10 unicorns, that's what it was, right? Let's say now you've got 10 virtual unicorns. Okay. 10 files that are called Unicorn 1, Unicorn 2, Unicorn 3, et cetera. Sure. And I have gone and I'm like, I want one of those unicorns, those digital unicorns. And I go and I make a copy of Unicorn 1. Well, from Chris's perspective, he hasn't lost anything Physically, he no. still has those 10 files. Yes. Right? Right. So, so it's different from the, 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 uh, uh, the traditional route of, of theft, defining what theft is and being able to punish theft. Uh, now it's still, I managed to take something from Chris without giving him anything in return, but it, you know, you can't, defining the, the punishment, defining the, the crime, You can't use the old model to really fit the new crime, right? I mean, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't encompass the same thing. So that's where we're at right now. We're Mm -hmm. at this, this point in our history where we have not yet truly defined what these crimes are, what they encompass, how they should be punished. We keep trying to use these old models that don't really fit the new, the new model of, of the way things work. That's where we're starting to fall into the, a lot of these issues. And people like Swartz have, have been pointing this out for years. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's not the only one. Uh, Lawrence Lessig, of course, uh, a yeah. professor at Harvard, has been talking about issues with uh, intellectual property and copyright laws and copyright law uh, reform for years. And in fact, Lessig and, and Swartz have a, a history of working together on different projects, uh, like the Creative Commons project. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, these are really smart people who are pointing out we can't continue to try and force new ways of thinking into old models because it's just not going to work. We have to come up with a new way of, of dealing with these, these approaches. Um, because that's the way the world's going. It doesn't matter if you like it or if you don't like it. If you think things should be, if they, if you think the information should be free or if you think it shouldn't be free and by free we're talking about freely accessible not necessarily uh uh you know not that there's no cost associated with it mm-hmm. like when you say information wants to be free do you mean that information wants to be out there in the world or do you mean information wants to cost no money i think most people would argue the first rather than the second so in other words as long as a company is able to make stuff available uh to consumers in an easy way an easy timely inexpensive way then consumers are pretty much happy to go and flock to it if they are not willing to do that then consumers will then turn to piracy yes so um there was an interesting discussion i read about how uh, this this balance between free and paid and and this balance between intellectual property and and uh, uh public domain and Part of the argument was going that we have companies that will promote something. Um, let's say it's a video game. Okay. So they'll pour a whole bunch of money into promotion and months and months and months of promotion, which ratchets up the anticipation of the people who are the customers, right? They want to play this game. And as that anticipation ratchets up and up and up and the game has yet to come out, those people are more likely to turn toward piracy because they have this – anticipation they want to satisfy they want to have the experience of playing this game but they have not they they don't have a legitimate pathway to get there so they take the illegitimate pathway mm-hmm. so in other words it's not that it's the fault necessarily of the the content creator but they are somewhat enabling this culture of piracy so in order to take that out you need to think think of a new way of approaching your your products perhaps you don't Promote your product months and months and months ahead of time and build up this anticipation. Perhaps you create a uh, an early build and you charge a very small amount for it. You make it easily available and you at least are able to profit on that anticipation early on. The solutions have not all presented themselves, but the point is that taking the old way of doing things is just not going to work because the world is changing. Mm-hmm. So whether you want information to be free or not is not the point. Information is going to be free.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, I, I, I should point out—I feel compelled to point out—that um, that Swartz is actually available or is also affiliated with a, uh, a nonprofit himself. Um, to achieve, to achieve what he, you know, sees as, uh, some, some attempts to make information more freely available. Um, and this organization is called Demand Progress. Um, they, uh, they basically have said that they are interested in, uh, finding ways to change public policy that they see is, uh, choking the internet, making the internet, uh, difficult to use, I guess, yeah. or difficult to get information that you need on the Internet. Let's say that. And uh, one of those those issues, according to the uh, CNET article I read, was uh, the Protect IP Act, which in the United uh, States, yeah. um, it is basically uh, designed to uh, help block access to um, websites that are suspected of piracy. Um, and so it, it, I, and, international and I, websites yeah, too. Yeah. Not just the United States, but internationally.
0: Actually, I think, I think almost exclusively internationally, hmm. but it's, which is kind of interesting because you're like, how do you, how do you then, uh, uh, enforce something mm-hmm. that is on international websites? Although the argument can be made, you do it by. Limiting what, where uh, sites from within the U.S. can link out to that, including things like search engines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, um,
1: I uh, you know the the FBI has actually also investigated him previously too um, for or at least uh, according to to Boing Boing. Again, this was uh, quoted in that CNET article that I read, but they basically have been looking at him for uh, trying to get U.S. court records from the public access to court electronic records database. Um, this was back in two thousand nine, so yeah I mean they they probably had their eye on him and it it's it, it may play a mitigating factor in what's going on I mean if they uh believe that he is a threat, they will probably make sure that they uh they send him a message
0: yeah yeah there I did read that that one potential motive for the federal government was that you know they were essentially trying to to uh they 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 were still angry over the 2008 uh, uh pacer issue um that was the the whole uh, well Swartz ended up participating in a call for downloading uh documents from from uh, a government database of court records which you were talking about there chris and um and he did it really really well and uh it was because there was this brief moment where these documents were free when normally they would cost about eight cents per page and so swartz ended up downloading i think like um well around 20 million of them so 20 million documents that were free at that point that normally cost eight cents per page he got hold of the 20 million of those the government got a little upset about that but swartz did not break any laws he was following the, the, the law. The law said that at that point they were free and that anyone could download as many as they wanted. It's sort of like if you open up a, um, a buffet restaurant and someone comes in and sits down and they start going to the buffet table and they go to the buffet table like 15, 20 times and you think, well, you know, you should really go and like, well, I haven't had all I can eat yet. <laughs> Yeah, I, it says all you can eat, and I have not eaten my fill. You have been here for hours. <laughs> um,
1: well, uh, I, I also feel compelled to to point out that um, that my note program just crashed. Um, right. But but Swartz is not the only person to have uh, to have acted, um, you know, on these principles. Um, sure, I had been reading too about uh, Gregory Maxwell in an article on Ars Technica who uh, posted 32 gigabytes with 18,592 scientific articles to BitTorrent and basically said that uh, Swartz's arrest uh, was what uh, decided or what he used to, as inspiration for, for posting this. And he said, um, there's a, a, a quote from him, all too often journals, galleries, and museums are becoming not disseminators of knowledge as their lofty mission statements suggest, but censors of knowledge because censoring is the one thing they do better than the Internet does. Um. So yeah. Um. You know, I, it, it's possible too that that other people will will act on uh, on similar principles and decide to to do that themselves. Um. So the, they're they're. It, this is definitely something that's that's not going to go away.
0: No. And this is this is a very as we've said, this is a very complicated issue. You've got a lot of different parties involved here. You've got the actual people who are creating the content. You've got the people curating the content. You've got the consumers of the content. Um, you got the government in there. I mean, the, this is uh, one of those things that's going to take some real legislation to kind of address. And even then, you know, you know that at least one of the parties is not going to be very happy about yeah. whatever the outcome is. And, uh, so it'll be interesting to see how this story develops as it moves on. The, you know, it's, it's, again, it ties into things like we've talked about the ethics of piracy before and, mm-hmm. and whether piracy is ethical or not. You can argue that, well, if you want to be able to get, uh, content that's in the public domain out so that people can actually see it, um, is there anything wrong with that? And, you know, that's, that's a tough question to answer, you know? I mean, uh, you, you could argue that maybe for anything that's in public domain, there should be at least an easy way to access it. Yeah. If not, um, you know, if not like just distributed everywhere, wherever it does reside, it should be pretty easy to get to. Yeah. Um, uh, but we just haven't created those systems yet, and uh, in the process, it's it's pretty ugly. Well, that about wraps up this discussion on lots of interesting topics in intellectual property, digital theft. Uh, you know where are we going from here? And honestly, we just don't know until more time has passed.
1: Yeah, it's 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 funny. We we often have a solution or something or an idea of how we would would proceed with this, but this is this is thorny. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a
0: complicated not- issue, and it's uh, and you know what? It'll probably be a really. Uh, tumultuous uh, uh, issue for a while and we won't really we'll get to a resolution but I bet it's going to be a rocky road so uh, rocky, rocky road. road on that note we're going to wrap this up if you guys have any suggestions you would like us to tackle in a future episode of Tech Stuff let us know you can find us on Facebook and Twitter our handle there is techstuffhsw or you can send us an email and that address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com